Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Okay, on today's program, we are excited to be with two of my friends, uh, Radel Razor and Jeremiah Captain. Um, and they have extensive experience as entrepreneurs, as wealth creators, as motivational speakers. Uh, they're former athletes turned uh, really um, pro-Black venture capital activists, right, in a lot of ways. I'll read just a little smattering of these very, very long bios. I'll start with Razor first. Uh, Radel has uh, over 10 years of experience in launching and consulting small and mid-sized businesses. As the CEO of X Factor Capital, he's focused on creating concrete capital solutions and growth strategies for black businesses. Uh, Radel serves as a director and co-founder on the board of Construct Diversity, a not-for-profit committed to a higher level of racial and gender diversity in the construction industry and related businesses. And Jeremiah Captain, <laughs> Jeremiah has... Over 15 years of experience in sales, marketing, public relations, and talent management. As co-founder of X Factor Consulting Group, Jeremiah has played a key role in motivating employees in large organizations and educating employers to help close the gap between corporate leaders and their diversity and inclusion efforts. And I've seen this online on Instagram as well, um, you know, speaking before huge crowds of thousands and thousands of people. Really excellent, brilliant. Uh, so, uh, Razor and Captain, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thanks, Stock. We appreciate it, man. It's great to be here. We love uh, we love what you're doing, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Very excited. Honored and humbled, man. Long overdue. Excited to be here in person. So I want to talk about how we met, because it's interesting. This is kind of like when you do the Breakfast Club. I feel like I've done Breakfast Club. We don't have that experience like you do, God. No, no, no. It's really— Prime time. Prime it's, time. It's, it's a privilege. It's a privilege because with you all, you know, um, we met during the pandemic. We yeah. met during the pandemic. Yep. And uh, we created um, something called Black Men Creating Social Impact. And we had a big conference here at University of Texas at Austin last November. So I want to talk about um, both how we met and how the last couple of years has accelerated the pace of people in the United States and globally talking about social change, but not just social change through things like ending police brutality, not just social change through things like um, uh, voting rights, which are really important, but really I think this is the first time in American history where we are really in a big, big way talking about social change through wealth creation, mm -hmm. through wealth creation. And with with black people being um, entrepreneurs and creators, and we're going to get into the weeds during our discussion, but being on boards, mm. being part of the venture capital space, the venture phila philanthropy space, the tech space, the hedge fund and private equity space, um, the financialization uh, of ourselves space, because that's the new space in the 21st century where everything we do is financialized. And that includes in good and bad ways, because when you look at Instagram and Twitter and different stuff, it's not just religion that is financialized. Food is, everything. activism is. But one of the things that as a father, and all three of us are fathers here, that I've seen, our children are financialized. Mm -hmm. People are putting their kids on, and I'm not. I'm not criticizing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying that uh, opportunity. Opportunity. There are yeah. there are like these brilliant families who are doing all kinds of positive stuff. But you see one, two, three, four, five, six kids yeah. 
you know, with them. Yeah. And you're like, wow, this is a brand. Yeah. Too. No. Yeah. Um, so let's let's yeah, sponsored by Disney or something. like that. Exactly. Yeah. So well, I mean, before I even dive into that, I mean, the beautiful thing of living in a capitalist society, when you look at the tax codes, there's benefits for having your family be a part of your business, you know, having a family business, having a trust, all the things to what you break down to kind of protect it wealth and grow wealth. So having a family office, you know, there's so many things we could dive into later and talk about it. But starting from the top, you know, diving back into my attic, you know, remembering how we met back, it was, it was April or May of 2020, probably, yeah, probably April. And I remember you, yeah, pre-George Floyd, you wrote your book and I saw it get posted on social media and anything that gets dropped with Malcolm, anyone that knows me, I just devour it. I love everything about Malcolm. Obviously, I'm respecting both Martin and Malcolm, but over the later years of my life, I've become a little bit more uh, Malcolm in philosophy. So when I saw your book, I just devoured it, you know, loved it, you know, read it from front to back and really just love how you articulated their story, um, being more, you know, being more one at the end of their lives. And I reached out to you through social media and saw that you had a a decent following, but I was like, man, this guy needs to grow. Like, you know, so I, I appreciate out. that. <laughs> yeah. Like, we got to get this man's message out to the world because I know you spent your whole world, um, you know, your world just working behind the scenes, you know, being an activist, but really grassroots on the streets. But in the social world, you know, you just were kind of new coming to the party. Uh, so definitely want to connect with you. You were very gracious with your time. And when obviously the world galvanized behind the killing of, of George Floyd, uh, you were probably one of the, the third calls that we made in, in our kind of reflection of like, what do we do to kind of stay sane as black men and what's going on? Uh, we made some critical calls to help us um, from a professional standpoint. We had some calls that helped us start our nonprofits. You mentioned construct diversity. And then we want to talk to you as a black male leader that's been doing this for years. You know, how do we cope personally with ourselves? Because the struggling I was going through, you know, waking up in the morning, shout out to Uncle Nearest, black whiskey uh, owner. But I was drinking that at 11 a.m., you know, three, four days after George Floyd, knowing that I was struggling with something you know, just emotionally and personally. So I needed to kind of have you help me walk through that. And then, okay, what do we do moving forward to be a part of the change? Uh, so obviously we've, we've been connected over, we uh, create the black men creating social impact. And that's been phenomenal coming out to Austin, speaking to the young men um, at the, at that event was super dynamic. Really appreciate you just like giving us that platform. And it's opened up so many doors for us out here in Austin with it becoming more of a tech hub. And we actually saw something online. I don't know if the data is actually true, but Austin is the third top city out of the top 10 where black professionals are doing well, not only financially from their job, but also owning land. And like living in a capitalist society, you can't solve structural problems with just charity. You have to come in from a capitalistic approach with bringing capital into people's lives so that they can create fun and launch businesses where they can take care of themselves. So in a nutshell, that's a little bit of how we met and that's how we did the programming and really what we're up to with X Factor Capital is finding, funding, and fueling black entrepreneurs in the tech ecosystem. So a little bit of that, I'll let Rodell share a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I remember, uh, I'm, I'm thinking back of when we did meet, um, we actually programmed that entire event without meeting in person. Uh, we were telling Emily back, we were like, yeah, the first time we met Doc, we were like, hey, nice to meet you. There's your spot on the stage. Um, and so it was, uh, it was really great. The, I think you spoke to something, Doc, that I think is interesting what's going on in America, especially black America, where being black and being pro-black doesn't mean being anti-economic. Um, uh, you can actually be both. And I think there was a time where if you were an activist, you couldn't have, uh, you couldn't be 
heavy on the economic conversation. Um, and, you know, many people believe that's why Martin was eventually killed is because he started to bring economics to his conversation. But I think where we're at now as a as a country, as a people, um, we have more um, permission um, or maybe courage um, and tools to have these conversations. The internet's been a very powerful tool for many of us to educate ourselves on our history, but also on what we can create in our future. So, um, yeah, Black Man Creating Social Impact was an, was an amazing weekend. And for us, it's been a catalyst. Um, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that that event was special for the attendees and for the mission what we wanted to create, but it's been a catalyst into Austin becoming really a hub for X Factor, uh, which we're very grateful for. So thank you. We didn't. We haven't even updated you on that. So thank you very much. Oh no, I, we're, we're yeah. gonna we're gonna talk about yeah. that yeah. <laughs> off the podcast yeah, yeah. <laughs> and ways to leverage. You know, I I want us to talk about, um, you know, when you think about X Factor Capital, but also X Factor Capital in the context of the world we live in, because in a lot of ways, what twenty twenty showed us was all these opportunities. But in the ensuing two years, we see all the challenges too, right? Because I think the same way that we're seeing challenges about critical race theory right here in Texas, right? And not being able to uh, be allowed to talk about black history, the challenges of voter suppression. Um, in fact, it was just a big win for voting rights activists because the Supreme Court refused to hear a challenge by uh, Republicans in Pennsylvania and North Carolina who wanted to revert back to gerrymandered districts. Uh, and in both of those cases, um, uh, lower courts had decided that um, one court in North Carolina allowed uh, a nonpartisan blue ribbon panel to, to do the the lines uh, instead of gerrymandering, and in the other, something else happened. But instead of what they wanted to happen in terms of suppressing votes, and having more R's, it, it was it was actually a win. But I, I would say that in the space of entrepreneurship and venture entrepreneurship, there's also been pushback. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I want us to talk about that in the sense of what are what are certainly we've seen the and we'll we'll get to the opportunities because we're a very optimistic podcast. But what are some of the challenges? You know, because in a lot of ways, um, and when we think about these issues like diversity, right now at the LBJ School, I'm associate dean for what we're calling justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Diversity is great, but I've always been a big push for black equality. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I am as a historian is my argument, and I think we see this even, and I said we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation, yeah. we see this in the Ukraine. Right now, Ukraine, there's a human rights tragedy happening in Ukraine, but it's in, impacting uh, people who are white, but also people who are non-white in Ukraine. Ukraine, African immigrants, um, Indian and South Asian immigrants, but one of the things the press is not talking about, there are mixed-race Ukrainians. Yeah. We're acting as if people do not procreate together and fall in love together. There are mixed race Ukrainian. We have, you know, my, my, my daughter's mixed race. Um, um, you know, Razor, you're mixed race. And and she's proudly black and you're proudly black, but still it's 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 still it's, it's, it's a dynamic, right? So when we when we think about where we're at in terms of uh these these challenges, right? This idea of diversity. I think we should be talking about black equality because it's only by getting black equality will it reverberate out to everyone. Mm -hmm. We're not going to have a world where there's black equality and black equity right. and we're somehow uh, abusing other people. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen, right? And so how can, what, what are some of the challenges you're seeing just even in the space right here? Because on some levels, through X Factor Capital, you all are 
creating something that's brand new mm-hmm. in terms of that's focused on investment strategies and impact strategies specifically from black creators and entrepreneurs that are going to impact uh, black communities and future black creators. But at the same time, it's going to be for profit and create wealth. Yeah. And that's the whole thing. Yeah. So it's basically this win-win, but it's really a paradigm shift too, because capitalism and business historically hasn't allowed black people to do this. Right. Right. And even then, you're still in a position where you're having to align yourselves with a lot of non-black uh, entrepreneurs allies, yeah. and allies. Yeah. 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 No, I think one of the things that we've um, and we're getting more and more information on this over the last just even 90 days is you can have a pro-black organization. But if it's in if it's underneath the umbrella of capitalism in America, it's hard to do it with just all black you have to have the white allies and um, not permission, um, but the access and the opportunity for people because the the mass amount of wealth is being held by white people. Um, and so in the venture capital world or in the investment, you know, the startup investment world, we can say we're a black organization ran by black men who invest in black people, but a lot of our money isn't our own money. So we're raising money from institutions that are white ran, uh, individuals who are white men, white women, white families, um, who are pro our mission, but are don't look like us. Mm-hmm. And so having some of those challenges, and I think that historically those families, those institutions, for them to align with a pro-black investment firm was taboo um, or wasn't as normalized. And so the, the challenge that we face or that, you know, entrepreneurs face who are fundraising is finding those organizations like an X Factor to where they have enough leverage and power to make an investment. Um, and then for us, finding the right people that are uh, aware enough, not necessarily woke, but <laughs> aware enough where they're like, hey, we want to see this solved with capitalism. Uh, we want to be part of the capital solution. We may not want to be a part of, um, you know, the political suit solution or um, the justice solution, they want to solve it with capitalism. And so that's where X Factor Capital comes in. Um, But the challenge is those networks are not easy to get access to. Uh, They're really not. We're very fortunate. Some of the networks that have been opened up to us, um, some of the the gatekeepers, the key makers um, who have said, you know what, X Factor, Rodell, it wasn't even X Factor, Rodell, Jeremiah, like, let's sit down, let's have a conversation, let's hear your guys' vision. Um, and those people, the only way to get to the next person in that network is through introduction. So we have to impress, we have to sway, um, and that's tough. That's tough because we don't come from the same background. So finding that common ground or, you know, even when we're, you know, pre-talking the the meeting, you know, it's like the, the talk before the talk, it's like, all right, wh- what are we going to talk, right? Are we going to talk? Football, that's what we go to, right? Because that's what we know. That's what they want to talk about. They want to talk about the Seahawks or whatever it is. And it's so, but our common ground isn't always easy to find. Um, and so how do you influence people, ask for their money, ask for their investment, ask for their buy-in, uh, or even more valuable to them is access to their network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of these people, their money is more disposable than their network is. Um, and so they're more willing to open up their pocketbook than their than their uh, Rolodex. Um, and so being someone that can be, um, that can articulate our vision in the, in the plight of our people, um, in a way that we, we're going to show capital solutions. Um, and it's with good returns, 
Um, and because right now we're all in thesis and theory, uh, we don't have concrete evidence to show that our thesis is going to be true. We just we're believing that a people that have been pressed down have been scratching for opportunity. And we'll talk about that, like you said, a little bit later of the upside of what could be. But I think the 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 challenges are really the networks that um, they have to almost allow us in um, because there isn't enough black wealth to build a lot of black investment firms just off of black wealth. Um, the white wealth and the white uh, the government money, those type of things are all held by uh, white men who have the power and the influence. And so those allies are really important. And Jeremiah, what are I want to build off of what uh, Razor just said. In terms of capitalism, and historians would say racial capitalism, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. And, so, and by racial capitalism, everyone, we just mean that historically capitalism has been based, in the United States at least, on the super exploitation of black bodies, yeah. the removal of indigenous bodies, exploitation of women as well. So it hasn't been it hasn't been this ethical, moral, political, legal, equal playing field right. that, 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 you know, but a lot of people are surprised about that. A lot of people would say that, hey, hey, I disagree with you. I think factually I'm correct. But in terms of people's imagination, yeah. capitalism is this equitable system and yeah. the people who rise to the top have risen to the top Meritocracy. based on merit, right? Meritocracy. So it's important for us to understand that when we say racial capitalism, we're going against the grain, the popular grain, right? Now, I'm interested in this idea that Razor talked about saying people didn't wanna talk about politics and justice, but I think with X Factor and all of us who are in this space, we do. In what ways do you think that capitalism a kind of progressive capitalism. It's interesting. I think about what Ice Cube tried to do with the contract with Black America, yeah. which Derek Hamilton, who's a friend, who's a black economist, brilliant, helped him with. And when you look at the weeds in terms of what they want to happen with FDIC yeah. and banking, yeah. it's a real legitimate part yeah. of when we think about reparations. It, yeah. it, it really is because it provides a blueprint for us to be connected to the financialization mm -hmm. of of, of wealth and wealth production. Yeah, what it takes to build wealth. But especially at the federal and yep. the state level, mm -hmm. alongside of some private actors that what people don't know, we all do, mm -hmm. constantly and consistently use the federal government in exploitative ways. So everybody who's always talking about low taxes and no government, it's not true. You need the government. The reason why there's a money supply, yeah. the reason why there's a federal reserve yeah. Even if you're Jeff Bezos, you need that yeah, yeah. because you need a backing yeah. for the ventures you're gonna do. Yeah. You need a stop. You That's what to play your, your yeah, way. Your, your way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you look want at it to it, play well, your way, right? So, so talk about that in terms of capitalism, um, justice, and politics, because it really is all intertwined. Yeah, yeah. it know, all works together. Our, our monetary policy, policy, our the the you know. J Janet Yellen, this is all politics, even as it's capitalism, yeah. you know, and it can be towards justice or not. Well, you look at our, our nation, which has been perceived as one of the greatest nations of all time, what it has created. Um, but what could it have been if this particular group would have had a seat at the table early on as well? So historically, we haven't had a seat at the table to create wealth because of, like you said, the race um, cr creation of wealth was, you know, to exclude us. But you looked at what you're creating now with this third book, right? The the third reconstruction, right? So we have the first reconstruction that didn't actually really take place to allow for us to at least be free 
free, at least potentially on paper, but not actually when you had the Jim Crow era that came in. And then civil rights was, okay, now we're going to be perceived as equal, but we still didn't make up for all the injustices happened for the last, you know, two, 300 years, 400 years. And now we're coming into this third phase of the paradigm shift of like, oh, yes, we need to support the black community in creating wealth. As we look at, you know, post-slavery, 98% of the wealth was held by pretty much white male. Black community still own 2%. If you look at the data, don't quote me 100% on this, it's still the same. Even though there's been a lot of progressive black wealth created through the entertainment industries, through athleticism and all that, and music and um, arts and, you know, acting and all that. But still, we still control 2% of the wealth. So there's still this 2% hump that we haven't got over. And we're 12% of the population. Yeah, so 12, 13%. If you, can, if you can imagine us being representative of, of um, you know, one of the ways you can think about sort of the end of racism or one kind of racism would be 12 black people having 12% of the wealth, yeah. 12% of all the board seats, but also 12% of uh, venture capitalist yeah. investment. At least six. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it would be beautiful. Like it's like, that'd hey, can we triple. at least get six, yeah, right? That'd be, that'd be triple. <laughs> yeah. 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 But but going back into that save, like how was how did America create what has been perceived as one of the greatest dynasties in the world, right? Obviously through exploitation, but also through allowing a particular group, specifically white males, European males, to come to this country and have access to what? Free land. Homestead Act. Okay, let's talk about that. And then we talk with this historical context because, you know, the, the whole concept of X factor is solving for X, the variable, right? You, if, you're, if we're looking at it from a mathematics standpoint, if I look at an equation, just look at the tail end of the equation, try to solve for X, I'm going to be wrong every single time. You have to look at the entire equation. So you look at the Homestead Act. These are just some basic things that we can kind of educate some of the people that want to know, how do I be a part of the solution? Okay, there was a Homestead Act created. There was the New Deal that was created to create pretty much a household income that people have been able to create, you know, millions of dollars. I think it's 70 trillion that's going to transfer over the next 10 years through generational wealth, through through the wealth transfer. And that was created back then with the New Deal and the black community didn't have access to that. The GI Bill. The GI Bill. So those three Mm -hmm. things right there. But it's so polarizing just to specifically talk about one specific group. And that's, you know, historically kind of like the left hand hiding from the right hand of kind of creating this, hey, this equality, but we can't just focus on one particular group. But if you want to create an initiative, you have to be specifically focused on that one target. So the black community specifically hasn't had that access. So we're not just saying in this form of reparations, like, hey, just give us money that solves all problems. It's not just solving with money, but it's the access to low interest rates. It's the access to potential better tax strategies. So um, to education, financial literacy that we just didn't have access to. And future black founders. I mean, I think one of the things you're saying, which I completely agree with, um, and I would add that, you know, part of the wealth creation in the United States was black labor yeah. producing that wealth. Because sometimes we think about Chinese coolie, so-called coolie labor and the building of the railroads. But when you think of when you look at it historically, the people who built the railroads were black people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And really, even after racial slavery, um, uh, there are great books, uh, including a book by Ed Ayers on uh, the promise of the New South, mm. uh, who was former president of um, uh, 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 maybe Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, is um, black people became uh, coal miners, turpentine labor, um, 
we were the lumberyard workers. Mm -hmm. A lot of us as conscripts because of the convict lease system. Yep. Okay, as conscripts, right? So when we think about textile industries, black women from around 1865 all the way into the first three decades of the 20th century are the biggest uh, uh, domestic workers in the, in the United States. Mm. So a lot of people look at Spanish-speaking immigrants now from Central America, yep. South America, Latin America, the Caribbean, Mexico, mm -hmm. and think, oh, okay, this has always been how it was. No, no it wasn't. No, yeah. every single Big thing. Mama. We're, Big we're, mama. We're, we're black people's jobs, <laughs> right? Medea. So, so yeah. Medea. Yeah. So when we think, of, and there's a great new book, everyone uh, called South to America by Imani Perry. So mm -hmm. <laughs> Razor just yeah. said uh, yeah. Medea, yeah. uh, where she talks about that. It's brilliant. It was New York Times bestseller. Now, when we think about um, this idea. Of, of wealth and wealth creation. Now I want to get us into the weeds because we have a program here at the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy that we're trying to launch uh, a, a program in black innovation and entrepreneurship. And we're trying to introduce into the ecosphere. These are undergraduates, mm -hmm. um, eight new founders per class, wow. you know, That's good. and they're, they're going to be connected to Macombs. They're going to be connected to people like you all. And we're going to teach them about, you know, a business plan, teach them about boards, teach them about, you know, pre-IPO, just like the whole works, right? But what I want us to talk about now is what are some of the specific ways that you imagine X Factor being able to be a part of this in terms of that ecosphere? Like, what are some of the metrics you're thinking about? Like, you know, in five years, how will your thesis have been proven out? And when you think about your thesis, this thesis about investing in black founders, creators in a way that is going to be both lucrative and going to sort of reverberate back to those communities exponentially. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and right now you're 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 workshopping the mm -hmm. thesis. You're, you're doing all these things. I, I want to get into the weeds of how how is it going to how is it going to look? How is it going to scale? You know, um, when we did our Black Men Creating Social Impact in a way that was um, one of the many proofs of concepts that you all are doing. You're, you all are on social media. And tell us your social. Yeah, so you can find me at Creating Champions, just as it sounds, Creating Champions at Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn under Jeremiah Captain. And uh, those are the best place to, to find me. And I'll let Rydell share a little bit more to your question. I wanted to point this out. Historically, the VC world was created out of whaling. A lot of people don't know that. So it was basically big business do whaling, but some I of the it. best. I'm, I'm learning. I'm yeah, learning. Some of I the love best, it. I love it. Guess, guess who some of the best whalers were that went hunting for whales? Black, folks. Black men. Well, you can yeah. see that when, you know, I, I re, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when they used to make you read Moby Dick. Yeah. So yeah. I read, I read Herman Melville. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, 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 I'm older than the two young, young yeah. men here. Um, and there is a black character, uh, in Moby Dick, mm -hmm. you know, I think he's an unnamed black character. Yeah. Yep. And, of and course, we the think, unnamed, but, but, he, so many but, unnamed. but he says, you know, it's interesting. There's a quote where he says that, um, he's black, but he's, he's fine and he's excellent with a, with a rich mind and, you know, and he moves on, but it's really interesting. Melville with black people and blackness is very interesting. And, and people have written scores of books and stuff, but I'm, I'm, I, I love that you, you said that that is the basis of venture capital, at least in the United States. Although, because I would say, if we go back to the old um, 
Italian city-states yeah. in terms of Venice and yeah. the Medicis and stuff. They were venture capitalists yeah, venture capital, to, yeah. to, yeah. to, yeah. you know to agree, investing in stores and even with Columbus co- convincing the queen to fund his vision and yes. come back. So yeah, it's yeah. all forms a- of, no, of a- that. Absolutely, yes. uh, But from an American stance, you know, some of the early venture capital deals, if you looked at the way the deals were structured, the way it was invested in from wealthy families would invest into this particular captain who would be pretty much like the fund manager yeah. and then he would go recruit a team and they would go build something yeah. that would be successful or go hunt something and yeah. bring it back. And it was very risky. It was super high risk. And they put a lot of money into it. But when they catch the big whale, um, they all ate off of that. And yeah. even the black, you know, sailors, they made good money off of it too. Absolutely. And went and started their businesses. But you just don't hear about yeah. just that that rich history of black wealth being created. Part of that 2% wealth that was owned was from those black sailors yeah. that took that money and went and started their own communities, built their own businesses. Uh, so yeah, but I'll let Rydell share a little bit more about how do we think this can kind of marry together? Yeah, I think for, you talked about like some su- success indicators. Mm-hmm. Tell uh, us your social too. Oh, Rodell Razor. It's Rodell, R-O-D-E-L-L, Razor, R-A-Z-O-R, um, on every platform. Um, actually, we saw that there was another like Rod Razor yeah. out there, but I'm, I'm the only one. Yeah, no, uh, he's, <laughs> he's, the, he's the OG. He's the original, the original. Uh, but um, I think some success indicators um, job creation is a is a big portion of uh, capitalism that gets celebrated by you know a lot of the the billionaire uh, or the billion dollar companies is the jobs that they then go create. Um, I think for us, what we're hyper focused on is dollars invested and then dollars returned uh, because that's in you know that's the bottom line. And so our our 10-year vision is $100 million invested. And then if you think what is considered like a venture-style return, you don't – we're taking these – this large amount of money, a relatively large amount of money, putting it in high-risk categories that are, you know, not physical assets like a piece of real estate or the S&P 500. You're taking it and putting it in a very high risk. So it has to have returns that exceed what you would get in another investment vehicle. And so – a venture style return, you don't want just two times your money or three times your money. You want a hundred times your money. Um, and so for us, our focus is a hundred million dollars invested with a 10x return and a billion dollar uh, you know, valuations that we create in the black community. And so those are some of the things that we're hyper focused on. And the the vehicles of getting there, our first three investments will be what we call foundational investments. Um, and that's what we're actually looking for right now. Uh, we're in Austin right now looking for, you know, to narrow down our 10 and take that 10 down to five that we call take through what we call a diligence process. And then those five will be sorted and we'll make three investments over the next 90 days to six months. We'll make about a million dollars of investments. Um, and so that's our target right now as we speak um, is to get that first million into the ecosystem um, and then scale that to 100 million. That's great. And what what do you think in terms of when we talk about sort of educating and like right here in Austin, we're building all this wealth, but there's all this racial segregation. We've got students, not just at Houston Tillotson, which is historically black college, but also here at UT. You know, I'm always concerned with UT because I teach here at UT and my black students and black folks here. We're not letting them be part of this ecosystem, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so many, you, you all are brilliant in the sense of that you're naturally gifted, but you've also hustled and hustled and sort of become self-taught and are curious students. So that's how you learn the most is by being a lifelong student. What are ways that you think we can leverage what you're trying to do in terms of higher ed? 
you know, especially and really specifically, because already we have a partnership here uh, through Black Men Creating Social Impact. But I do think that part of part of our destiny, if we're going to succeed, is scale, you know, mm-hmm. and being able to scale this both what you're doing at X Factor Capital, yep. but but really around the United States where where young, gifted black people are. And I think they're there in the millions. Yes. That's, yes. The, yes. that's the exciting, you know, the exciting thing is they're, they're, they're there in the millions, right? And they're everywhere. They're athletes, they're future doctors, they're future entrepreneurs, teachers, lawyers, chefs, cooks, artists, they're everything. They're just everything, right? Preachers, yep. they're, they're in every specific uh, sphere. So what are some things that both of you all think about in terms of doing to, to, and in this case, I'm going to be specific, you know, higher ed, like we're trying to do with the program in Black Innovation and Entrepreneurship, you know, a class of eight future founders per year. And we want to scale that up. We're going to start small. What are things that we can do in the higher ed? Because obviously this isn't things that you learned in undergrad. Right. You know, you all, I said you're young, but you're not like 21. Right. Um, this is stuff that you got along the way sort of hustling. And then, you know, it's it's almost like the crisis of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor also presented this major opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and there are some people who've made billions of dollars during the pandemic, but even for racial justice advocates, there was a lot more money, yep. you know, Black Lives Matter, different people in that space of reforming the criminal justice system. There's been a lot of opportunity. So what are some of the things you think that can be done or should be done in terms of trying to leverage this uh, for for black students and young people, people who are future founders, but who who don't know it. They might be a history major or a black studies major or you know psychology major, but truly their destiny is gonna be to run something that they create. Yeah. I think the, for what I've found for, specifically for students, uh, students are, have such an advantage when it comes to available resources on a campus, Um, and campuses have an immense amount of resources, Um, and I think building networks while you're here, uh, while you're on campus, if you're a student, uh, building those networks while you're here, and not having to revert back to those networks, Um, like, not having to go, oh man, I need to plug into an alumni. I need to do this. Like build them now. Um, and we'll share a story. Um, we had an athlete friend. I'll allow him to be nameless for now. We had an athlete friend went on to play in the NFL, uh, had a great career in the NFL and very proud of, you know, the success that he had there. Um, but one of his classmates was the founder of Instagram. And you think about those relationships that he can now go back to and he can, because he had a real relationship with that person. He studied it. He was in school. He was taking programs that supported being in those networks. And I think those are things that, you know, like you said, if you're a history major or whatever it may be, like building those networks within the the business community in a city like Austin where the the, the business community is really thriving. Uh, the business community is doing really well here. So I think trying to be intentional with building those bridges, hosting those events, using the resources like a large campus, like meeting rooms, things like that where you just have available to you uh, to build those kind of networks because it's not going to be the books that you read in college. It's going to be the hands that you shake. And so I think those students really being able to know that they can build those networks now, not only with professors, um, but with business people in offering themselves available. You know, if you're here, 
year and you're a student, you're having to work, like rather than going bag groceries, like go find a low paying job at one of these, you know, one of these startups and go get some experience into, into this ecosystem. Um, and then, you know, some of the things that can tangibly be done by universities is allowing startups to house. Um, that's one thing that startups suffer from is they don't have resources to, so having, Hey, you can, you can build your startup in one of our, uh, meeting rooms. Yeah. You know, you guys can and we use have it. some innovation labs, Innova here, innovation labs yep. but we don't have really, and that's why we're trying to do something dedicated to black innovators and entrepreneurs. Yep. And yeah. I think that's something that if you look at black entrepreneurs as a whole, you know, we, we all brag and, you know, there's a lot of stories around the, the garage to global companies, you know, the Bezos and all these people that, these guys were building out a garage, but 300,000 in seed money could have got you an office, <laughs> right? So like we actually build out of garages because we have to. Um, and we build companies that have millions of dollars in revenue from working from home with our kids at home. And so being able to have office space. So what universities can do is, you know, offer office space in these innovation labs to startups um, or mid-stage companies, companies that are at, you know, pre-seed, seed, series A, um, less than maybe $5 million in revenue because- if you can use, rather than paying $2,500 or $5,000 a month for rent, if you could use that to continue to fuel your company, especially if you're bootstrapped, um, and then put on those type of events where VCs can come and have access to the talent so they can showcase. Um, because the, the, the problem that Silicon Valley says is that we, we don't know where the talent's at. Um, and so making sure that we're showcasing talent nonstop, whether it be through pitch competitions, networking events, uh, happy hours, things like that, that we're facilities like a university can put on those type of things and have that kind of reach and marketing power um, that an individual just can't do. Okay. Thank you. No. Captain? No, good. Okay. Yeah, I want to ask you both about leadership because um, in a lot of ways what you all are doing in the journey and in certain ways we're all on this journey of sort of service-oriented leadership, but what, what – um, you know, one, what motivates you and what kind of leader um, do you aspire to be? And how do you, you know, in that in that space, how do you see sort of wealth creation, um, social justice uh, impact all converging in that space of, of leadership? Yeah, well, leadership is ownership. And um, you have to own, you know, your your and ownership is more than obviously wealth, but ownership is owning your decisions, owning who you are um, as an individual. But going back to what we said earlier, hey, diversity is like winning a game, one game, you know, uh, inclusion. You want an inclusive organization. That's awesome. That's like getting to the playoffs. But ownership is winning the championship. That's Super Bowl, man. And that's all that really matters. You know, when it's all said and done, you know, so we want to get to winning more Super Bowl ships, having ownerships in our decisions, in our wealth that we're creating. Um, but the leader I try to aspire to be when you look at nature, um, I try to go back to everything that's natural. A lioness, when she has her cubs, she doesn't hover over her cubs all day, every day. She leads by example and then protects when there's harm. But you role model the behavior that you want to see. So being the person that I want to be, but also the people that come behind me, like my children and the people that have been connected with me will see the things that I'm doing and will start to rub off. Case in point, me and my daughters now have two daughters, one that's 16 and 18, and me and their mother have co-parent, you know, over the last 15 years together, we've been um, separ separated and she's uh, she's married, she has a son. 
But now we're seeing the fruit of the seeds we planted early on in their life, where now my youngest daughter um, for the past two months has got employee of the month. Not saying that she's going to work for the rest of her life because there's nothing wrong with having a job. I think they both have some entrepreneurship spirit inside of them from watching me. But they watched their mother do very well and get to middle management in the company that she works for. And the work ethic that they have is through the work that they've seen me and her mother. Um, and then my oldest daughter, she's working at a grocery store right now and she has aspirations to get in real estate. So she's taking some real estate online courses and they're doing it organically without us pushing it on them. So that's leadership to me is basically the model that we've set, me and her mother, and now our children are falling behind that. So we have to be the leaders that we not only want to be for ourselves, but for the next generation coming behind us. Um, because the future is coming behind us, whether we like it or not, and what examples are we setting in by the um, the behaviors that we do day to day? All right. My, my final uh, question is really about what would you tell your younger self? You know, what would you tell your younger self? And I'm talking about yourself that was 18, 19 years old, might have been in a position where you're struggling, you need you needed to overcome something. Um, what's the what's the one thing that you would have liked to have known that you didn't at the time, that sort of, you know, hard-earned wisdom, maturity, um, and time and experience has brought to the fore? Um, this is an audio podcast, but I'm 5'7", 160 pounds. I probably would have paid a little bit less attention to football um, and focused a little bit more on business when I was younger. Um, and I say that, you know, tongue-in-cheek, but reality um, is our young people, um, are so inspired by, uh, entertainment, sports and entertainment. Um, and there's so much opportunity outside of that world. Um, and I didn't until, um, until I had the shortest NFL career in history, uh, <laughs> which was just a tryout, um, until then. With did, what team? Uh, we, so we had an open tryout. So there was a few scouts at the, it was, uh, the Patriots and the Niners were at the, uh, were at the tryout. And, um, uh, that was my stint. And, and it, until that point, um, that was plan A, plan B, plan Z. Um, and so it wasn't until I was 23, 24, 25 years old till I said, okay, I'm gonna be a businessman. Um, and most people don't know what they're going to do with their life at 18 years old, but I wish I would have been a bit more diverse in my, um, networking. Um, I really didn't take advantage of networking. And that's why when you asked the question originally, um, I networked with my teammates um, and that was it. And my teammates um, weren't and aren't active business people. And there was people on campus that I could have met, uh, but I was so focused on making it. Um, that plan A was the only plan. And, um, and you know, something, my sister's a student right now. Um, and something that I think our community, the black community, is a lot of us are first generation, whatever we are, whether it be entrepreneur, college graduate, whatever it may be. Um, how this country was built was on favors and nepotism. And we so badly want our own merit that sometimes we are closed minded to someone giving us an open door. And I, I think that that's going to be a demise of young people that they want so badly to earn their own stripes. Um, but the the white kid who's in that position of that job that you actually want or the, the boss that's hiring you, he got there because of his dad. He got there because of his uncle. Um, and so being okay that like someone wants, like a network is 
uh, something that you still earned. Um, whether it was you earned it by shaking someone's hand or your parents earned it, it's earned through your lineage. It's earned through your bloodline. So take those opportunities that you earned, um, even if it didn't come because you got the interview on your own and you sold yourself and like take the jobs that are open, that are open doors to you, um, and take those opportunities that are through networks, um, and nepotism or whatever it may be, whatever advantage you can gain, uh, because the, the deck is stacked against us. So we need advantages to climb to the top. So that's something I would tell my, my younger self. Wow, if I can go back to 18, man, I would have said, hey, man, buy Apple stock, <laughs> invest in these startups, <laughs> and go save George Floyd and every other black man that I knew was getting taken out, man. So much, so much to share in that. But uh, but as Rodell said, yeah, I probably would have pulled out a football a lot faster, man. Uh, the joke is I got drafted by the Seahawks to watch him practice pretty much was like a catcher in T-ball, uh, so wasn't, wasn't needed. But I uh, would have focused more on the STEM area, probably would have you know spent more time in that in that um, development of my my, my career. Um, also would have just taught me more about just the, the piece of understanding not only the real game that's getting played in America, because it's like we haven't been able to participate in this game um, for hundreds of years as a black community, but you learn the rules of the game kind of late. A lot of black men, a lot of black people, we learn the rules like in our mid-30s. And I feel like I'm still learning some of those rules to this day versus getting, you know, up to speed on the rules at an early age like so many other groups potentially get to. And you look at the game of capitalism in America, I, I, I always go back to sports because that's, you know, where we kind of started our 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 career of like pursuing success at a high level um, and there's so many transferable skills in sports but you look at like America's created so much like we created WD-40 we sent someone to the moon but where would we have been if we would allow some of our best talent that has been hidden away to have the same access to the same weight room same equipment same cleats it's like you're playing a game you have 11 players out there and five of your players don't have helmets on and cleats and they're not performing at the standard of the guys with cleats. Like, well, what if you gave them helmets? What if you gave them cleats? Like, we would dominate, right? So um, now we're in this chance where our our our, our communities finally having access to potentially having better equipment, so they can actually go play the game. Um, but you know, going back into that narrative of you know what would I have wanted to know that I didn't know now, just that being more present in the moment. I think I, yeah, I think we all can look back on reflection of how fast we're moving, just trying to survive. I had kids at a very young age. I was 20 years old. And sometimes, like, my kids were leading me. Uh, so I always thank them for them helping me develop me um, to who I am now. Um, but being more present in the moment and not being focused on the past because that was, you know, the past was a memory and the future is a mystery. So really being present in those moments, I think that's something I would really wanted to, you know, focus on being 18. All right, great. I, I'm so excited about this conversation. Um, I've had friends of mine here today, uh, Rodell Razor and Jeremiah Captain, who are the co-founders of X Factor Capital. Um, oh, I, I see here it says you're CEO of X Factor Capital, and Jeremiah is co-founder of X Factor Consulting Group. Is there a is there a a difference? Yeah, so con yeah. the consulting group was actually what we transitioned from. So Jeremiah and I were building a consulting firm. We were going around the country doing keynote speaking, doing workshops for major organizations like CDW, Intel, companies like that where we were working. And then once we finally had the courage, once we saw a knee on George Floyd's neck, we actually had the courage to go, this is what we ultimately want to do, and we got to do it now. 
Um, and so we got to help, you know, that, and that's how we saw, that was our bridge, um, that really, to X Factor Capital. So we changed the name of the company, uh, from X Factor Consulting to X Factor Capital, where we were focused on small business development, uh, middle size doing workshops and then large companies doing keynote, keynote speaking and things like that. Um, and then we, we shut down essentially all of those, uh, practices. We still do a very little consulting, uh, but most of what we're doing is focusing on capital. Oh, wow. That's great. That's great. So uh, I'll, I'll say that they're co-founders of X-Factor Capital, yes, where, where yeah. Rodell serves as CEO. And Captain, what do you serve as? I just serve as serving our people. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you so, know, serving our people, man. That's what we do. So this is this is great. Um, uh, I want to tell everybody to check them both out on Instagram uh, and social media. They have, you know, an enormous, um, enormously impactful uh, discussions about wealth creation, entrepreneurship in our communities. All future Black founders should f- follow both of you because I think, uh, you know, I follow I follow both of them, and it's hugely um, inspirational as well. It's inspirational and educational. Uh, so that's it. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having us, man. It's been an honor, and love to continue to build our relationship and supporting you and your endeavors with Jedi. And thank you for opening up the doors at University of Texas. It's really opened up a lot for us. It's the power of a relationship. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H, and our website csrd.lbj utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.